There he is. There's the man. What's up, everybody? AJ Capasso here. How's everybody doing tonight? <laughs> and nobody answers back. Wah, wah, wah. I don't have that yeah, noise, but we'll just do this. Oh, it didn't last. Golf clap. Golf clap. I don't hear it. Oh, you didn't hear it? Damn. Nah, don't worry about it. Anyway. <laughs> so, so uh, we were talking before the show. Mm -hmm. Look. I know. Look how it's beautiful empty. it is behind him. It's empty. And look, empty. look at this. Look. Oh, and the clock. <laughs> and the clock. And the clock. Yeah. And the clock. Yeah. Oh, I'm... Uh, I'm glad you're still uh, recovering, Chris. I hope you uh, have a full recovery. I hope everything yeah, man. Well for you. So uh, Prayers, we're man. thinking about you. Thank you for coming in and watching tonight. It's a good one. It's our final, not our final, season finale. Season finale. Ep Case season finale 12. of episode, or so I'm sorry, season finale of season one. Yes. Case 12. Case 12. Yes. Yes. This is a serious case because I know a little bit about Patrick McKay. And let me tell yeah. you, sick individual. Sick individual. <laughs> you know, we, we've had some pretty bad people. We uh, have. And we, and we yet, the, yet is best to come. Trust me. Our best is yet to come, I should say. Because there's a lot more sickos out there. The list goes on. But yeah. Patrick yeah. McKay, please tell a little bit about him. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'll answer, Chris. Uh, we're, this is the last episode for season one. So next week we won't be here, but we'll be back the following week. So we're going to take a little bit of a break, even though we took a little bit of a break not having a show last week. Yeah, due to a, oh. my medical issue that I had. Yes. So we're good. Which is obviously more important. So no. uh, Patrick uh, David McKay, he's been given some wonderful names, some nicknames. Ooh. Uh, well, originally his name was David Groves, mm -hmm. uh, but his other name is The Psychopath. Yeah, that, that and the and the devil's disciple. Wow, I never heard that one. That one I have not heard. Devil's yes. disciple or disciple. Uh, sorry, disciple. Disciple. Oh, disciple? what did I say? You said disciple. Did I? Yeah, disciple. I was like disciple. Okay, that's why I was yeah. like, okay, I never heard that one before. Disciple. Got to look that word up. But no, I okay. yeah. I'm disciple. a little. I'm a little bit slow today. I'm glad so I caught that though. Yeah, I'm a little I caught bit slow. That. Yeah. yeah. So that's uh, all right. You know what's going on with the what's going on with the people in England? I dude, I don't know. We have been uh, getting all these guys right out of England. Yeah. I feel really bad because I always want to yeah. visit. I always feel like they're the nicest people I ever meet. Look at Robin, yeah. look at Lex. I mean <laughs> Yeah. And you know? uh, you know, the funny thing is there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Essex. Yeah. Yes. Is that a bad side of is that a bad side of England, Essex? I wonder. Is that like the the uh the um okay, for example, here the bad part of Toronto is two locations. There's one, it's called Scarborough, which is not nice at all. A lot of gangs. Uh and and then the west side of Toronto, there's uh Jane and Finch, which is an absolute you don't want to hang out in that area. You really, mm. there's a lot of gangs, uh, a lot of immigrants, um, and just a bad, 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 bad area. But yeah. I don't know what's going on with London. We seem to be focusing a lot on London, and especially it's this not guy. on purpose. Yeah, no, it's, it's not, not on purpose. And, yeah. 
but he was born in Middlesex. He was born in Middlesex, or sorry, uh, he, he was born in Central Middlesex Hospital, but uh, his parents and sisters were raised in Dartford, Kent. Wow. Or sisters, yeah, his sisters, yeah. His parents well, were Scottish. I'm looking forward to this case. But uh, yeah, he's uh, life imprisonment, 20 yep. years, minimum term. Now, it's suspected that he killed uh, between 3 and 11 people. They know about 3, and apparently he, he admitted to all the others, but he mm. only got charged with 3. Now, his crimes were between February 1974 and March of 1975. So this was a while ago. Hello. Hey, Des, how are you? This is the first time I'm seeing Des in this room, or has she been yeah. in here before? No, I don't know. I don't know if she has, but thanks, Des. I appreciate. You know what? Talking. She's she's taking over for, for Jonathan because Jonathan's that's not. Here. That's what it is. Yep. Yeah. That's what yeah. There you go. Right. So, so yep. Yeah. Um. He was apprehended in March of 1975. Okay. Harold died from a heart attack on his way to work, uh, resulting complications of alcoholism and weak heart his last words to his son oh remember to be good yeah apparently um i want to say that i want to say that we've done some pretty bad people but this guy's probably got to be one of the worst wow look at and what chris said god not to stop you but yeah, he said McKay was, Harold was his dad. Yeah, Harold died from a heart attack on his way to work. The result of complications of alcoholism and a weak heart. His last words to his sons were, "Remember to be good." That yeah. is so crazy, though. You just said that, like he's talking about it, and like I mean, Chris brought it up, obviously, but yeah, it's just so funny. Um, Remember to be good. His father was, a, yeah, his father was an accountant. His yeah. mother was a descent from uh, Ghana. Uh, yeah. It's um it's just so crazy those words though. Remember to be good and then look what ends up happening. You know what I'm saying? Like the kind of the irony of what those words are, you know what I'm saying? Like the irony and the fact of all of that is just like what? Like to the image of who Patrick McKay is, it's very I don't know if iron irony is the word to use, but if it is, then I'm using that word. But if it's not, pick a different one. I'm trying to take a look here. I'm trying to see because he was up for parole in 2022. And it yeah, doesn't say how, if he was released. I was going to say, how old was he when he went in, though? Uh, well, he's born. Uh, he's 71 now. Oh, he's 71 he born, now. Okay. So yeah, yeah, he's, he's born. Young, so yeah. he, was, uh, he was born in 1952 in Middlesex. It was actually, he was born in Middlesex. Wow. Middlesex. <laughs> yeah. Dude, you know what's crazy? Is that right next to my town is a town called Middlesex. And then it goes oh, really? Mary, and then it goes Middletown. Yeah. It goes Durham, Middlesex, Middletown. It's fucking hilarious. So it's so but funny it, that sorry, not to swear, but that was funny that you said that. But here we go again, as I said near the beginning of the season, that I always find that these particular people or killers, yeah, uh, when it comes to uh, crimes like this, it's usually, and um, when it's physical like this, it's usually because of uh, father trauma. And apparently his father did beat him. So uh, there was physical abuse from his father. So, mm. but anyways, um, before we get started, I do want to talk about a couple things. I just want to let everybody know 
that we did have another team sign up yesterday for the Global yes, Ghost Hunt, which is fantastic. Uh, the team that will be joining us is Spirit or Spirit Mechanics, yeah. uh, which Raymond is a part of and helps out with. But uh, yeah, they're going to be doing their investigation. I forget the location that they're doing, but um, it looks good. It looks like it's, uh, I think it's a theater. Oh, if, nice. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think it is. Yeah, uh, I, but, uh, I passed it on to Ra Raymond. So, yeah. So uh, that's great. But there's some other news that I want to talk about. And I was going to wait till I was going to tell AJ after the show this news. Uh, there is something, something pretty cool. And I, AJ, I might have already told you this actually, but it's, it is going to be happening soon. So for Parapost Network uh, Central, there's something pretty exciting going to be happening. So I met a gentleman back December, November. Mm -hmm. um, he's starting a podcast on this page or a vodcast. It's called the, uh, the Hatter's uh, Pan Pandora Box. Um, I'm actually going to be helping co-host with him. Uh, so I'll awesome. be on there every so often as a co-host. But there's something really cool happening. Uh, uh, Kevin is uh, putting together a movie. Uh, he's already done part one. He's going to be doing part two. And I'm going to be in part two. That is awesome. Yeah. So he asked me if I wanted to be in the film, which obviously I said yes, because I'm an actor, obviously. Right. So I, I'm not yeah. going to turn that down. So, but what's really cool is everybody else on the page is going to be involved somehow, some way. And oh. what that means is, so basically what the, what the uh, movie, I'm not going to give everything away what's going on with the movie, but basically it's a dream sequence type of movie. So Kevin is going to be uh, obviously the main character. And but what's great about it is uh, in a particular dream sequence, he's a paranormal investigator. I like it. Yeah. So I'm going to be interviewing him as a paranormal investigator. Ooh. So he's going to come up. We're going to ask some questions and stuff like that. And uh, he's going to be basically a paranormal investigator. We're going to show a clip of some of an investigation. But uh, what's really cool is we're going to do that live. So when we do it, everybody can come in the room and watch. That's awesome. So it's almost like an interview that I'm going to be interviewing him. And you guys get to watch and be a part of it. That's so, awesome. So Parapost Network Central will be part of this movie, which obviously is going to be fantastic. Uh, uh, to get Parapost Network Central out there in a huge market. Uh, so people are going to be able to see that and be a part of this interview that I'm going to be doing. So it's going to uh, be awesome. Will, yeah, we'll let everybody know when that's going to happen. Hopefully it's going to happen soon. I'm just waiting for the waiver forms and stuff like that to uh, to do this. And me and Kevin are going to be doing this. But Kevin's new show. Um, which I'm going to be co-hosting, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, he's going to have different guests, mainly mainly a lot more uh, on the famous side of people, like especially in the sports area, uh, which is great. As far as I know, he's wanted to get one guy on. I think he already has him. I'm not sure. But he was the center for uh, Joe Montana for the San Francisco 49ers. 
Wow. He's going to be up. Um, we're also going to have a guy by the name of Jim Dodd. I don't know if you're familiar with that name. It yep. might sound familiar. Uh, he played for the New Jersey Devils. He was a hockey player. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're also going to have some other big time. I believe he wants to bring up a, uh, a once famous boxer. And awesome. But this boxer apparently is now homeless. Oh, so and this boxer wants to share his story on yeah. what happened after boxing. So yeah. it's going to be those type of shows. It's going to be really cool. I know he want he has an idea for another show. I'm a little iffy about it, but I'm it's not my show. I'm just there to look pretty. Hey, there so. you go. There you go. But hey, that's going to be awesome for Kevin. I'm super happy for him, and it's going to be awesome to have him on the platform for sure. And yeah, yeah, you see the I, movie too. Yeah, we're gonna do a test. We're gonna do a test run, and uh, it's it's gonna it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. And uh, cool. but the movie thing that's gonna be a lot of fun, and yeah. everybody can kind of somewhat be involved and watch and see what yeah. see what happens. So what the, what will happen is if it's a thirty minute interview, they will take probably five or ten minutes from that interview and put it in the movie. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's awesome. Anyhow, other than that, uh, not much else. Why don't we get to this documentary? And uh, again, if anybody has any questions, please put them up there. If you have any comments, put them up there. And uh, but again, this will be our final uh, season uh, season ending of season one. So hopefully, you guys enjoy this video. So here we go. In the 1970s, London's police were baffled by a series of bizarre murders. They were struggling to find any clues, they were struggling to find a real pattern, and they were getting murders all over the metropolitan area. The perpetrator was a disturbed young man called Patrick Mackay. He was like a, a little terrorist. He seemed to have a split personality. And the last of his crimes was to be the most horrific of all. He'd been murdered with an axe, with many, many blows to the head. Even as a child, the warning signs were there. One of the teachers described him as a potential murderer of women. But was Patrick Mackay born to kill? If ever the term cold-blooded applies to anybody, it was Patrick Mackay. The London areas of Chelsea and Knightsbridge have always been home to the wealthy and powerful, full of luxury shops and high-end restaurants. But in the mid-70s, the peace here was shattered. Well, the Metropolitan Police was confronted with a, a fairly extraordinary set of crimes. They were muggings, robberies, and also handbag snatches. Tell me you the like area that. of London where these offences started to take place uh, <laughs> was very affluent, very trendy. They all um, came off the Kings Road area. They spread down to the waterfront, which uh, faces onto Battersea. And even today, that is a very, very affluent area. There was somebody out there who was mugging old ladies in a few isolated occasions killing them. So certainly there was a feeling that there was a predator who was stalking them. 
the mugger seemed to be befriending wealthy women, gaining access to their homes, and on occasion, he would murder them in cold blood. Here you were dealing with a dangerous psychopath who could kill at any time and without warning. In early 1974, one such heinous crime would shock London. Isabella Griffiths was the widow of a surgeon and she lived in Cheney Walk, that's a very uh, smart street, in Chelsea facing the River Thames. She was physically assaulted, probably strangled, but the murderer then also stabbed her. The body of 84-year-old Isabella Griffiths lay undiscovered for almost two weeks. She was found in the kitchen, stabbed through the solar plexus just below the heart with a knife, which was then rammed into the floor. It appeared that Isabella Griffith's murderer had established some kind of trust relationship by carrying her shopping or, or, or doing some other chores for her. At all events, he knew exactly where she lived and was able to persuade her to let him into her home. And that's where the crime took place. Isabella Griffith's murder provided no clues as to the perpetrator. The police were stumped, and the bag snatching and petty theft continued around London's more affluent areas. Then, almost 13 months later, on the 10th of March, 1975, the killer struck again. Adele Price lived in Lowndes Square. That's another fairly smart part of London. She was obviously a wealthy person. And just like the Griffiths case, the murderer had persuaded her to let him in to her premises to try and get a glass of water or some other pretext. At all events, once he was in there, he attacked her. The offender strangled the lady and she had her granddaughter lodging there who came home and the granddaughter actually saw the offender, she didn't know it was the offender at the time, leaving the premises. The murderer let himself out and the granddaughter passed somebody coming up the stairs towards the flat. When she got to the flat, she found one of the rooms was locked from the outside. She let herself in and her grandmother's body was there. And of course she raised the alert, not knowing that the person she saw was undoubtedly the killer. And a police constable came and looked for suspicious circumstances. When the granddaughter mentioned to him that the door of the room had been locked from the outside. At that moment, the PC said, hold everything. This is a crime scene. Police were worried this might be just the beginning of a gruesome spree, but were struggling to find a motive. There's a myth about serial killers that they're all sexually compelled, not by a long shot. Many are motivated by greed. Anger will motivate some power. Some have no particular reason at all. Uh, they just start doing it, and then they keep doing it. Police were faced with a mystery. Forensics were nowhere near as well-developed as they are now. 
So what evidence you did have didn't really lead you anywhere. The Metropolitan Police were struggling. They were struggling to find any clues and they were getting murders all over the metropolitan area. There was a pattern building up that worried them. They drafted something like 50 officers in at the Metropolitan Police as a, a supplementary murder squad, because if that spate continued, it could have been the worst serial killer they've ever known. With a murderer on the loose in the streets of London, the police were feeling the strain. However, the next revelation in this case was more bizarre and brutal than anyone could have possibly imagined. In London, in the mid-1970s, the Metropolitan Police were faced with a series of mysterious killings. At least two women had been brutally murdered in their own homes. The Metropolitan Police were realising that this was becoming prevalent and they didn't know who did it, they had no idea where to go. However, the killer would next strike in the unlikeliest of locations and in a way that would shock and terrify a small community. Sean is a peaceful village near Gravesend on the outskirts of London. It's such a pretty, picturesque village. Very, very good community and spirit. It's a perfect place to live and work. It was home to Father Anthony Crean, a well-respected member of the community who was known for helping out the needy. Father Crean was a priest at the Corpus Christi home called the Malt House in Shaun. He had something like 12 nuns living within his confine. He loved nature and he always was accompanied by his Jack Russell. Where he went, Jack went. He often called on parishioners just to pop in for a chat and say hello. and. I don't think Jack was always welcome. However, it made no odds to Father Crean. On the 21st of March, 1975, the peace in Sean was to be irreversibly shattered. Detective Inspector Ken Tappenden was at a black tie event with colleagues 14 miles away in Maidstone. We had a call about half past eight from Gravesend Police to say that Father Crean had not returned home, although his Jack Russell had. So there was the only thing that put anything of suspicion in one's mind. Nothing came in for another couple of hours and eventually we get another call saying he still isn't home uh, and now it's dark and people are beginning to get quite worried about it. A number of us go straight to the scene, straight from the hotel in our DJs. Nothing could prepare Ken Tappenden for the gruesome scene that confronted them. A nun 
was actually screaming. And it would appear that the priest had been found dead in a bath filled with blood. He was in the bath in his duffel coat. He was in his Wellingtons. Okay, so if you uh, if you kill if you kill a priest, uh, it's pretty well guaranteed you're not going to a special place. Oh, I mean, no, but you know you're what, not though? going upstairs. No, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure that's definitely a no no. But then again, the children might say different. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I'm just gonna let's just press play. Never mind. Never mind. And he had a woolly hat on. This was a horrific, horrific murder. This was a frenzied attack with a medieval weapon that caused horrific injuries and wounds. He was floating in a, in a hideous mixture of blood and water. True. Yeah. The detective superintendent who had come from headquarters found an axe with blood on it under the stairs, which is next to the bathroom. And this is the weapon that killed Father Cree. Oh, wow. And it was covered in blood. But there's no doubt the blunt end of it was used to smash the skull. I know you get used to it, but there's every now and again you'll find the murder scene that is disturbing. And when you see the ferocity in which he was attacked and killed, you, you, you can't help but keep thinking about it. News spread fast through the tight-knit community of Sean. When we heard Father Crean had been murdered, everyone was completely in shock about it. Somehow, we were all kind of, that thing couldn't happen on our doorstep, you know. And we really felt very, very, you know, sorry for him to have such a a bad end to his life. Yeah, it was a bad day for him. It was a bad, very bad day for him. Desperate yeah. to find the killer, Detective Inspector Tappenden had a moment of inspiration. He remembered a case involving Father Crean from 18 months earlier. Having sat up all night, puzzling through this one, what came to my mind was a young man in his early 20s uh, called Patrick Mackay. Father Crean had been helping Patrick Mackay stay out of trouble when Mackay betrayed his trust. Father Crean had tried to befriend Mackay, tried to give him a helping hand, and in return, what does Mackay do? He robbed uh, the Catholic priest of a cheque, altered the cheque and cashed it. The day we told him he's being charged with the check, he went quite berserk. And I thought then, this man's disturbed and something disturbed me about him. For fraudulently cashing the check, Patrick Mackay had been defended by Robin Clark. We're in a deprived part of Kent where it is a struggle for youngsters to get jobs. Uh, and he just struck me as being part of that 
that uh, background. He was just a normal criminal charged with offences involving Father Crean. Remembering the connection between the priest and Patrick Mackay, Ken Tappenden acted quickly. I asked Bob Brown and Mick Whitlock, who were two of my officers, I just said, I think it's Mackay. I don't know where he is. Go and find him. Two detectives were assigned to find where he was living. He was living, actually, at, by that time, in a hostel on the Great North Road in London, a hostel for ex-offenders, ex-prisoners. But he wasn't there. The hostel owner actually said that he was staying with a family called Cowdery. They had no option but to simply go to the electoral register and find all the Cowdreys who lived in South London. And they had a remarkable stroke of luck because the first family they knocked on the door, not only was it the right family, but Mackay was actually in the house, sitting on the sofa. Mackay quickly admitted the murder, but shockingly, he would not stop there. Patrick Mackay would go on to reveal a litany of crimes that would stun the interviewing detectives. So just who was this man, seemingly capable of such horrific and bloody murder? Patrick David Mackay was born on the 25th of September, 1952. He grew up in Dartford with his parents and two younger sisters. Roland Hayes went to school with him. In the playground, we was all like young animals running around and uh, some good people, some bad people, and uh, Patrick Mackay was one of the bad people. He was in a special class, what will be called special needs children these days, but in those days they were just trouble. And he, he was like a, a little terrorist. Wow. There would be a girl standing there talking Great. to her friend, and he'd come running in from a side that he couldn't be seen from, blindsiding her, and he would shove her, or pinch her, or push her, and then run off again. The girl would be ah, crying, stuff like this, and he'd be laughing, looking over his shoulder, laughing, you know, and running off, playing his next move, you know. In my I think days, it could be said that Mackay had a very strange... In my days, when I was in public school, and maybe yeah. when you were in public school too, like in, you know, grade one to grade six, yeah. In my time, or maybe your time as well, that meant you like you liked the girl. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, you know how what's his thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I exactly. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. You're right there. I mean, I had a girl when child. I was in the, the like public school when I was younger that liked me, and the way that she would show me was she would kick me in the nuts, and I'm like, yo, that's not a way to show somebody that they like you, but. I mean, look at him, Patrick McKay. He was sick, so I mean, you know what? I, you never know. You never, you never know. know what happened to her. Well, no, I do know what happened to her. She's an amazing mother, has amazing kids, amazing oh, family. Okay. So I'm very proud of her. But she's actually, I believe, in corrections too, which is pretty cool. But did you remind just, her? Did you yeah. remind her what she used to do to you? Oh yeah, we've had conversations before she was married. Obviously, I told her I was like, "Thanks, man, as a friend, you know, thanks." <laughs> <laughs> Mackay's mother, 
Marion Mackay was a Creole lady from Guyana and his father, Harold Mackay, had served in the army in the Second World War and was very, very traumatized by the experience. When Patrick was young, his father often led Patrick into what had happened in those years and how it scarred his life. If the father finds great satisfaction in regaling children with these gory stories about people getting um, blown apart or him killing people in the war, and that's going to have a child, you know, imagining what that looks like and how do I get close to this? How can I feel part of this? Harold Mackay was a seemingly mild-mannered accountant, but he'd been traumatized to the extent that he turned into a very violent and alcoholic character who often assaulted his wife and often attacked the little boy, Patrick. Mercifully, appears not to have attacked his two daughters. And it was in this atmosphere of domestic violence, I'm afraid, that Patrick Mackay grew up. Whether it's beating mom, getting drunk, bullying people, being belligerent, whatever the father's doing, if the son thinks that's where power lies, that's going to influence what the son later becomes. There are so many clues that Mackay's childhood was unhappy. For example, his habitual cruelty to animals, his tearing the wings off birds, his even putting a most disgusting thing, he put a tortoise on a fire, and then when it was dead, threw the carcass over the adjoining fence. Oh, that's sick. People who develop into killers later who are bullies are going to be looking for living creatures that they can easily control and that they can experiment on. And obviously the, the closest thing to that would be the family pet or neighborhood pets, or you go out in the woods and torture animals out there. You're basically looking for some living creature that will feel pain so that you can see what it's like to inflict this. We certainly see that in the past of a number of serial killers because that was, a, a, to their minds, a very good starting point. Mackay's strange behavior did not go unnoticed by his school friends. After school, we used to go walking around the town a little bit, and we used to go uh, exploring, and we used to climb up this verge through the trees and then to some wasteland, and we used to play around up there. The first time I went up there, actually, with Patrick Mackay, he picked a, a bell-shaped flower filled it up with his urine and drunk it in front of me, oh. which, uh, which I was absolutely gobsmacked, you know, when he did that, which was the reason he did it. It was just to shock me, you know. You know, he seemed to have a split personality, you know. I mean, you could talk to him, he seemed to be normal enough, but then he would suddenly run off on these long legs and uh, snatch something off of a pub table and run off with it or something like that, you know, or run into the front of a shop, snatch something and run out again. That was the sort of thing he did. And then he would come back you know, with me, and, uh, and then he would be normal again, you know. As he grew older, Patrick Mackay's behavior would become ever stranger and more extreme. Where it would lead him would stagger the nation and earn him the dubious title of the most dangerous man in Britain.
In the early 1970s, London had been plagued by an unexplained crime wave of muggings and murder, culminating in 1975 with the discovery of Catholic priest Father Crean in a bath of his own blood. 22-year-old Patrick David Mackay was arrested for his murder. As investigators looked into his past, they would uncover a disturbing tale of madness and violence. When he was 10 years old, an event would occur that would have a profound effect on the already unpredictable young boy. One day, Harold Mackay left for work as usual. The last thing he said to Patrick before he left was, uh, remember to be good. And on his way to his office in London, uh, he had a heart attack and died. He was only in his early 50s. Patrick never saw him again, did not attend the funeral, which took place in Scotland. And to all intents and purposes, his father had just walked out of his life and there had been no closure. He never, Mackay never really adjusted to the fact that his father was dead. When the father dies, that will rip a huge hole in his world because his identification lies with the father. And it's almost inevitable that he will now take on the father's characteristics and become, sort of replace the father. When Dad died, don't forget he was only 10. And he There's just something I have to say to what she just said. She just said when the father figure dies, the son will take on the persona of the father in the form of him grieving or missing or something, basically, mm. is what she was saying, right? It's yes. so weird that she said that because ever since my father has died, I have a huge hole that I feel is missing a part of me. But then I find myself taking on the persona of him like personality wise, I find myself doing that. And it's so weird that she said that right now, because that was a sum up of everything that I've probably been thinking about for the last four years since he's been gone. So it's wild that she said that, that this kid had that same probably problem or whatever that was going on in his life. Only I chose to obviously deal with it differently than he did. But it's just weird to hear that out from a psychologist, you know what I mean? And, and be able to associate that. So I just wanted to say that is something really weird. So, yeah, thanks, Chris. I appreciate that, you know, for, for saying that. Mm, interesting. Okay. Took over his armchair straight away and bullied the whole family, beat the girls, beat mother, just like father had done. I knew him before his father died, and, and I think that uh, the die was already set. Maybe... He found himself in a more excitable state. He was more emotional afterwards, but I think, you know, he, is, he was, even at that age, you know, what he always was. After Mackay's father died, Marion Mackay found life very difficult, though heaven knows it must have been fairly difficult while he was still alive. But from that point on, things went from bad to worse. Marion Mackay moved with Patrick and his sisters to Gravesend. But it would not prove to be a happier family home. Mackay was always angry. I mean, not least because of the kind of awful upbringing that he'd gone through. And it didn't take very much to provoke him. 
The police frequently were called to domestic disputes of the house and Patrick Mackay was behind all of them. We had NSPCC officers here. Police were called out. Either he was beating up his sisters, sometimes beating up his mother. He would actually scream and shout. The neighbours would get alarmed. They would call the police. Sometimes mother called the police because she couldn't handle him. One local officer in particular, Amy Tapp, was called to the Mackay family home on many occasions, as often as four times a week. He was just like a caged animal. He was emotionally sort of very disturbed and at the time very mental. Amy Tapp bore the brunt of so much of this because she knew him backwards. She could always talk to him. She could always make him become rational again. And yet she said he'd kill. Well, I felt that he should be at least put somewhere and shut away so that nobody could be damaged as a result of what his sort of mental reaction to people. He was violent and obviously would hurt somebody in the end. Whenever things got too bad, Mackay would be placed in various institutions to try and improve his behavior. Extraordinarily, in spite of the trouble, violence and dissension that he caused in his home to his mother and his sisters, Mrs. Mackay, his mother, always agitated and campaigned to get Mackay out and back home, and very, very often succeeded. They was only ever stable when he was away, and yet mother always wanted him home. And when he got home, it was nothing but upheaval for the whole of the family. Between the ages of 12 and 22, Patrick Mackay would be in and out of various special schools, juvenile remand centres, psychiatric units and prisons on no less than 18 occasions. He was in and out of mental hospitals, but nobody seemed to appreciate the seriousness of his personality disorder to actually do something about it. Every time he was put away, he was troubled. He would get out on the roof of the Stonehouse Mental Hospital, rip the slates off. He went into Court Lees, which was an approved school or remand home. Uh, they beat him and locked him in cupboards. Uh, he had a very bad life himself. He would have resented being there. He would have hated being there, and he would have been treated very badly when he was there. And this isn't the way that a young boy can be corrected. You know, you're only going to make them worse like that, you know. Those who evaluated Mackay early on called him a psychopath, and I think that's probably obviously correct. He had no interpersonal bonding or attachment to anybody. But it's more than that because he was just so strikingly antisocial. It was just him against the system and the system was very harsh. The authorities and psychiatrists were at a loss to know what to do with the disruptive Patrick Mackay. And rather than improving, his violence and depravity would escalate. In addition to numerous petty crimes, Mackay turned to arson, attempting to burn down a church. Fire setting is arousing. Individuals could set a house on fire, a car on fire, a field, and they feel incredibly powerful 
by watching what they had done. So those are not good signs at all in somebody's background. He was sent to approved schools, one after another. Interestingly, at one of the approved schools, when he was only 15, one of the teachers described him as a potential murderer of women. Despite this chilling prediction, Mackay was once again permitted to return home. About a year later, when he was being treated in a nearby mental institution, one of the psychiatrists described him in writing as a cold, psychopathic killer. Amazing foresight, as it turned out. In 1968, age 16, Mackay was diagnosed as a psychopath, someone showing signs of antisocial behavior and a lack of remorse. We are finding that psychopaths in particular do not have the same brain structures as normal people. Clearly, something's going on with their decision-making process that is involved neurologically and not just psychologically. Mackay's erratic behavior led to yet another stint in Moss Side Psychiatric Hospital, where he demanded to be known as Franklin Bolvolt I, a name he proclaimed to be feared. I'm going to stop it here for a minute. Now, this is not, this is, <laughs> every time I see a picture of him and I think of the guy from One Direction. Oh my God, yes, dude. What's his name? Harry Styles? Louis, uh, is that, no, Louis no. Uh, Tom, Tomlinson, uh, Tomlinson, I believe. Tomlinson? Uh, Louis oh, yeah, Tomlinson. Yeah, 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 yeah. He looks okay, yeah. almost identical. I couldn't to think of the name. He does. Yeah. 100%. Every time, yeah, it's weird. Everybody in the room, look it up and you'll, it's, it's, it's hilarious. He looks almost identical to him. Yeah. I wonder the if there's any relation. Good. I know, right? Yeah. And remembered like Hitler's. In fact, Mackay developed an extreme and bizarre fascination with the Nazi regime. Mackay became interested in Nazis and Nazi atrocities because this interested him. He was interested in committing atrocities. This is what Mackay's psychology was. He wanted to hurt people in any way he could. And so reading about or seeing others like the Nazis, what they did to other people was immediately interesting to him. He had himself photographed with a swastika on one arm. His room at home, covered in memorabilia, became a kind of Nazi shrine. He was under the impression that uh, he was 100% pure Aryan. Uh, he was, of course, one quarter black. With such a checkered past and erratic, violent behavior, it was no surprise Mackay's name was top of the list when Ken Tappenden was investigating the horrific murder of Catholic priest Father Anthony Crean. But with Mackay now in custody, the true depths of his depravity were about to be exposed. When we had him in custody, naturally his fingerprints are taken and those fingerprints turned out to be from the murder of Adele Price. 
Mackay's fingerprints had linked him to at least one of the murders the Metropolitan Police had been unable to solve for over a year. That police got involved and very quickly it became quite a, a drawn-out uh, police investigation. It was marvellous because they then went through a whole succession of murders in the metropolitan area where they'd been searching for this person, and it was Mackay. Mackay would admit to several other murders, but the extent of the list of victims shocked even the most seasoned detectives. A lot of these murders came from his own word of mouth, but we checked them out and they, did, they were murders. One was the murder of Heidi Minilk on a train at Catford. He opened the door and threw her out on the track, dead. Wow. Wow. Frank Goodman was a tobacconist in North London. He was bludgeoned to death in his shop just after he closed, and his shop was robbed. The murder of Mrs. Hines in Hackney, right next to the Hackney Theatre, he said, when he's interviewed about that one, that murder was as easy as washing my socks. Oh, goodness. The picture became clear. Mackay had been responsible for all the muggings, the murders of the old ladies, the murder of the Catholic priest. Now they had their killer in custody, the police started piecing together the motives for these heinous crimes. Mackay started out killing elderly women. Why? Because elderly women are a more vulnerable target as opposed to a younger woman who has the potential to fight back. The odd thing about the crimes that Mackay committed, he was able to establish a relationship of trust with well-to-do middle-class old ladies who were perfectly willing for him to carry their shopping and to bring him into their homes and offer him, uh, I don't know, a glass of water, a cup of tea, whatever. But at all events, he had a manner sufficiently plausible, sufficiently charming, to take these old ladies in. Robbing and murdering vulnerable elderly women made some sense to the police. But why murder his supposed friend, Father Cream? I can take one guess. Yeah. In amongst Mackay's belongings, police found photo booth pictures that Mackay had taken the day before he killed the priest. He's snarling in them and he's got his hands clawed out like a cat and you can see his eyes are gone. They portray a person that's schizophrenic and I think they portray a person that is so troubled that the only place for him is to be in custody or incarcerated medically. I disagree on that one. How does that picture tell me that he's a schizophrenic? Patrick Mackay used to use the word peculiar about himself. He said that uh, in the days leading up to a murder, he felt peculiar, whatever that meant. And he then said he felt peculiar in the days after a murder. So I don't think he reveled in the crime. I wondered at the time whether even he knew exactly what he was doing. We're now in the centre of Sean, 
uh, only a hundred yards from where Father Crean lived. And I know that he frequented the Crown Public House here. And it was well known that he actually came with Patrick Mackay on the odd occasion. Mackay has an ability to pick out vulnerable people and then he attacks them. Father Crean was very nice to him, was uh, very supportive of him, and in Mackay's mind, I believe he equated kindness with weakness. He saw a weakness with Father Crean and he attacked him. When Patrick murdered Father Crean in that terrible way, I think Patrick was kind of experimenting on what it would be like to raise his level of aggression to that point and see how it affected him whether it, it disgusted him or what he had done or, or whether he loved it. Mackay later described how after killing the priest, he filled the bath and watched the battered body of his victim floating in the bloody water for over an hour. He's calm by now, he tells us. I was very calm then. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. There's something very mad about hanging around with the dead body of the person you've killed. In the case of Isabella Griffiths, he hung about with the body, filled the sink with, with, with crockery and shoes. Again, with Adele Price, he hung around listening to the radio. He actually fell asleep in a chair while the body was lying there. Very difficult to get any kind of sensible, sane explanation for that kind of behaviour. He said it was nearly as good as the experience of when I saw a tramp coming over Hungerford Bridge who had been drinking methylated spirits and he coughed. And he said, I just thought he looked dirty and filthy. And I picked him up and I threw him over the bridge he said and what was wonderful about it he fluttered down just like a bird Mackay's psychopathic tendencies and extreme violence were clear but was he always destined to be a murderer was Patrick Mackay born to kill I would say so Patrick Mackay was arrested in 1975 for the brutal slaying of 64-year-old Catholic priest, Father Anthony Crean. The man who would later simply be dubbed the psychopath would be charged with several counts of violence and murder. I saw in a newspaper a banner headline, Patrick Mackay, the most dangerous man in Britain, it was. That's how he was described. And it went on to say that he'd killed somebody and possibly others. It was disbelief to start with that I should have known such a person, you know, and uh, disbelief and, and shock and surprise. Mackay was to be represented in court by the very man who defended him when he fraudulently cashed Crean's cheque almost two years earlier. He'd have a good day and a bad day, and on a good day, you know, you could be talking like you and me now. Bad day, he'd more or less throw the book at me and walk out the door. 
it became apparent that the number of years that he'd been going through institutionalisation, foster homes, unhappy circumstances at home, drunken father who was a bit of a, a violent man, and his mother who was uh, quite volatile. That of itself had taken its toll on Patrick. Life hadn't been good to him, and I think it did leave its mark on his uh, character and personality. I mean, he went in and out of mental institutions. The authorities must have known they had a very serious case on their hands. And there's no doubt he was released by the authorities, unfortunately, to kill. The police believed that Mackay had committed up to 13 murders, but could only decisively prove three of them. Isabella Griffiths, Adele Price, and Father Anthony Crean. His appearance at the Old Bailey lasted a mere 20 minutes before Mackay was judged guilty of manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. Journalist Nigel Nelson was there. Patrick Mackay was a chilling presence. When you saw him in court, it was almost his body didn't belong to himself. It was like it belonged to somebody else. And so if ever uh, demonic mentalness or whether it's real, then Patrick Mackay was certainly it. The headline on our paper was Devil's Disciple, and I think that summed him up rather well. Patrick Mackay was sentenced to life imprisonment, but the question remains, was he born to kill? I don't want to say anybody was born bad, but if, if out of all of the individuals you look at, Mackay is probably somebody who had a very, very strong predisposition to behave in an antisocial way. Personally, I don't think that Mackay premeditated these murders. I just think something triggered this manic rage in him. Some little gestures, some action or other. It's often said as an argument against corporal punishment that if you're violent to somebody, they'll be violent back. And taking the analogy of Patrick Mackay's childhood, one can't help but feel um, that there might be something in that because of the violence perpetrated on him by his father. I think with Mackay, the environmental influences are so dominating. From the moment he's born, violence was a norm, and he gravitated toward it. So that, be, that really is a, a nurture issue, much more than a nature issue. At the time, he was the personification of evil. There is no question that while he was carrying out hideous crimes, he was completely overtaken and obsessed by evil. He never set out 
as far as I can see, to do any of these things. They just happened. And that was what was so scary about it. If ever the term cold-blooded applies to anybody, it was Patrick Mackay. Was Mackay born to kill? Well, he had a very disturbed and violent childhood. But then a lot of people have that and don't become serial killers. There must have been some genetic kink or other in there that set off the manic rages. The combination of his background and this personality trait was a perfect storm. Could he be plausible? Yes. Could he be friendly? Yes. Could he be unpredictable and dangerous? Totally. And could he kill? Yes. Don't know if he's born to kill, but from the age of 10, he was going to kill, and he did, repeatedly. That was incredible. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah, that was a wild, incredible story of Patrick McKay. Let me tell you, I did not know that much in depth about him. Um, but I tell you what, that was a very fascinating but serious and ugh, heinous, you know what I mean, kind of person. But uh, it was a very fascinating person for yeah. sure. You well, know, I, I wonder was just if reading you a little out. bit while we, yeah, well, this is it. I was just about to say that he was actually denied parole. But okay, that's right. He is now he is now out on day pass. Thank you. Forty-seven day years pass in jail. Over there. He he's on day pass uh, after he was denied or refused parole. Uh, I don't know when this story was put up there. I think it was two two thousand seventeen. Might be before. Mm. It might be after that. But uh, apparently, after he was denied parole, he was seen a a month later at a bus station. So he wow. has been allowed day passes. Wow. That and is crazy. Do, do you want to see a picture of him? No, I've had my ball. I mean, if you have a, a yeah, if you have an 80-year-old, yeah, a picture of him. I mean, let's see it. I have a I have a picture of him. Um yeah, it's uh he's um total different person. Uh right. Uh let me just get to it. Um, let me just uh put this up here. Uh, share screen. Uh, window, and there he is. Here he is, right there. Wow, the regular Joe that you would never expect to be the man in the pictures. Let me tell you, that guy yeah. does not look like him. He's uh, 71 now, spent 47 years in jail, and now apparently he's allowed out on day pass. Chris goes, he's working at a subway. <laughs> <laughs> the shirt looked like a subway shirt. <laughs> oh, that'd Actually, be funny as uh, shit. Yeah, yeah. Hey, that's I guess it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, 
He's a, he's I work in jail in Subway, that's messed up. Well, yeah. He's a, that guy's in jail, that Jared guy. I know. Um, I know yeah. he is. That's why I said he's the next Jared yeah. guy. Yeah, but uh, – Or he yeah. was the first Jared guy, I should say. There we go. I cannot believe this guy's allowed out on day pass. <laughs> Me either, man. Me now, either. I, I would have to – I would have to be honest. He's probably, he's probably not. I wouldn't say he's. I you can't change your personality like that. But I don't know. Forty-seven years in jail. I think that would change you in some way. Usually, when they go in young, like my aunt always tells me, usually when they go in young and they're like lifers or something like that, when they get older, they really do change their ways. Like she has a person who is in a gang, uh, one of the biggest leaders of a gang in her jail that is in her unit. And basically she has watched his whole life change where now like a puppy leaves and he'll literally ball his eyes out. Like this man would never show tears. Like he told my aunt, like, if it wasn't for you, Miss Capasso, like I'd never be crying my eyes out over a dog, like all this stuff. So I think you can change, but I think you have to go through something very serious to do that. Hey, Matt, what's up, brother? Look, what's the look who happened look who to stopped pop in. in. And then, I love yeah. it. Yeah. There I you go. It, there you go. Long time no see or talk. I know or um, talk. Yeah, yeah bastard. But uh, <laughs> yeah. but you know. uh, yeah, it's just I can't believe this guy's out on day pass. No, me either. Me either. Now, it's how crazy. many does he? Now, how how many does he get a month? It's That's probably, what I want to know. Yeah, I'd be interested. And to uh, I I I still can't believe at the beginning I said disciple. Disciple, yeah. Uh, I know, disciple. You've been thinking about that all show, haven't you? I have. I have. I have yep. The I devil's disciple. Disciple. <laughs> what the you hell? said it's so serious too, and I'm like, I really? know what the like, hell. I never heard that, never heard that uh, yeah. name. Disciple. Damn. Disciple. Right. Yeah. Well, brother, we miss you too. That worked. And thank yeah. you so much for stopping by to say hi, brother. Yeah. Thank you for stopping by. Let me give um, you a call. So this. Um, I would have to say, where, where who would you rank as the worst so far over the the twelve episodes? Oh God! Um, Do you remember them all? I don't remember all of them. Like, but like, if you remind me of like certain things, I would remember all of them. But like by name, no, because I'm terrible at name. But ooh, that's a hard one. Okay, who would you pick? Because I want to say first. Because honestly, the one the 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 kidnapping one was a little, little weird, you know, little. Uh, but it wasn't as bad as what I'd I have thought to it say. Was the acid bath killer is probably one of the top ones. That was about to say worst one. Yeah, I'd have to say number two would probably be uh, Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka would probably. Be yes. The yes. One. Yep. Yep. And I would have to say the way the what what this guy did. Oh God! Even uh, even what's his name from England, who killed over two hundred fifty people, has got to be up there oh. as well. Yeah, um, yeah. It's hard to it's it's, it's hard, hard to say because they each individually have their own unique aspect yeah. to their lives that make them fascinating in some weird way. Yeah, I would have to say Harold Shipman's probably my number one. Yeah, it, killing over two hundred fifty people. Yeah. I mean that and is only, definitely the most only, heinous. Yeah, and only and only uh being charged with 15. Yeah, that's crazy. So, I would have to say he's probably the number 1. Mhm. The acid bath killer would be number 2, Paul Bernardo, and then uh the one we did a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. 
Yeah, that would be that. Would be, they're all bad. They're all bad. Well, wait, obviously. Well, wait, wait, because so. the one that we're gonna do for next season, man, this Albert Fish guy. Wait, anyone who ever knows this or even wants to find out about this guy, look up Albert Fish. Okay, F I S C H, I believe. But it's, I'm telling you, this guy is nuts, like totally nuts. One of my friends told me about him. He's like, you got to do a show on him, but it's got to be a big show about this guy. This guy is, he's sick. One of the sickest people out there. So I can't wait to do him. So let's get excited for next season. Albert, Albert Fish will be the next one. That'll be it. We'll start off with a big one. Yeah. And my clock, my clock, my clock over there says 10 after. Yep. You know what that means? That uh, means Patrick McKay. Case. You're psycho. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Case closed. Good night, everyone. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. And thank you for all your comments and stopping by and saying hi. And uh, I really appreciate it. And as well as AJ does. But we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And uh, thank you, everyone. Yeah. Thank you so much. And don't forget to tune over, uh, turn over to. Our podcast listening apps like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all the major podcast listening platforms we are on at Crime Documentaries. Make sure to check us out on the go to check out all of our episodes from season one and all the seasons to come. Um, We look forward to bringing you more. But until next time, like I said earlier, Patrick McKay, case closed.